Welcome to Think Bible, the podcast that exists to challenge, edify, and encourage Christian women to think and live biblically, all for the glory of God. I'm your host, Stephanie Smith. Well, welcome, friends, back to the Think Bible podcast. I'm Stephanie Smith, your host again today. I know we've had a lot of weeks in a row of just me, and uh, that was not my intention at the beginning of starting this podcast. I really enjoy the interviews and talking with other ladies who are faithful in their walk with the Lord, and I intend to get back to that very soon. Um, However, the place that we are living right now does not have good internet, and that is necessary for me to record with other people. So that's why we've had this streak of just me. And I'm sorry, I hope you're not too bored. (laughs) Um, We've tried to cover some things about Bible study several weeks ago. And we were talking about just general Bible principles, as well as specific things like um, how do we understand the biblical narratives or the gospels or things like that. So we're going to pick that back up this week in poetry. Um, We've taken kind of a break. We did some things for Mother's Day and some things on parenting. We did a short series on 1 Thessalonians 5, the pray without ceasing, rejoice evermore, and everything give thanks. So we're coming back to that Bible study. We're going to do poetry today. Hopefully that made sense to you. (laughs) All right. Poetry is a major part of our Bible Of course, immediately we think of Psalms and Proverbs as being poetry, which is correct. Those are songs, especially in the book of Psalms. But there are many other uses of poetry throughout scripture. Did you know that both Moses and Miriam wrote songs about Israel's deliverance from Egypt? Hannah spoke a poem um, when the Lord gave her Samuel and she brought him back to the temple. Job is included in the books of poetry. The whole thing is written in poetry, along with Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Lamentations, and large portions of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And it's not just an Old Testament. In the New Testament, we also have Mary's Magnificat. Um, Paul used quotes from various poets of the day, and he wrote some poetry into some of his letters. Um, I believe it's in Philippians, where many scholars agree that some of the things Paul wrote there were actually a song that the church would sing, the first century church. So it's really fascinating to realize that poetry makes up roughly one third of our Bible. So it's important that we know how to properly understand it and apply it and obey it. Um, I've mentioned before that I've used the Bible Project to look at some of these things. And again, I want to give a little disclaimer that I don't agree with everything on that website. They are quite reform in their theology, and I am not. Um, However, they do have some good principles. And so those with reform theology don't, their, their understanding doesn't affect every area necessarily. So, Let's get into some of these specifics about poetry in the Bible. Uh, 
While poetry conveys the same message as every other part of the Bible, which is the gospel, really, it starts with creation and then the fall of man into sin, um, man's failure to keep the law, no matter how many provisions God made for it, they, they simply could not do it because they were fallen, sinful humans. And then, of course, we have the redemption that God has provided through Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection, and the future coming life of those who believe in Jesus as their Savior, how it will affect our future for eternity. So that is the message of poetry as well as the rest of the Bible. That's God's big message. And, um, but the difference is that poetry helps us experience these things rather than just describing them to us. It validates our human emotions and it also teaches us the right way to respond to those emotions and to the experiences of life, which is faith, trust, and obedience all surrounded in God. We talked about this recently in Psalm 13 when David changed his heart from that impatient, petulant, demanding attitude to one of rejoicing, trusting, and focusing on God through the avenue of prayer and learning God's word. So there are just a few thoughts about Hebrew poetry that I want to point out. It is vastly, immensely different than Western poetry. So when we look for a poem in our own English language, first of all, we look for the meter and the rhyme. How many beats per line? Does it rhyme every line or every other line or just what? That's what we naturally look for in poetry because we're English speakers. But that is not what Hebrew poetry is like. First of all, it is written in couplets, which are two short lines that are carefully worded and placed close to each other. Well, the first line will state a a basic thought, and then the second line will complete that thought, or deepen the thought, or contrast the thought. So for an example, uh, we're going to look at Psalm 51, the first three verses. It says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness. According unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgression. So that first verse, that first couplet, shows an example of a completing thought. God's love and mercy are shown through forgiveness of sins, and that's stated in two different ways. And then verse 2, Wash me throughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Here's an example of a couplet that is deepening that thought. So the first line asks God to wash um, him, the writer, from iniquity. And wash there just means literally to wash, to put it under water and scrub it and wash it. But then the next line says, cleanse me from my sin. And there cleanse means to actually be in the state of purity, to purify. So it deepens the thought by asking God to make him even cleaner, more washed uh, from his sin. And then verse 3 um, It says, for I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. This is a contrast. So in the first part, I acknowledge, I know my transgressions. 
David was saying he knew about the private sins he had committed, his thoughts, his motivations. But he also says, my sin is ever before me. It is outside of me and it's evident. Everyone can see the fruit of those first thoughts. So um, right there in Psalm 51, the first three verses give us the examples of couplets that are completers or deepening or contrasting the main thought. I thought that was really interesting and I enjoyed looking at that. Um, Another characteristic of Hebrew poetry is that refrains are often included when a key phrase or a line is repeated. In our own English hymns, we have what we call a chorus, but it really is the same thing, a refrain, a part that we repeat between every verse. Psalm 136 is the epitome of this, when each verse ends with the line, For his mercy endureth forever. I'm going to read just a few verses of those for you. O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. O give thanks unto the God of gods, for his mercy endureth forever. O give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endureth forever. To him alone, to him who alone doeth great wonders, for his mercy endureth forever. And on and on it goes for 26 verses, telling us every time to remember that God's mercy endureth forever. You'll find these in smaller sections all throughout poetry, and those are called refrains. Another style that is common in Hebrew poetry is called inclusio, which means that the poem opens and closes with similar couplets or the same line. So one thir- Psalm 135 is just right there next to 136, and it does this. It says, praise ye the Lord, praise ye the name of the Lord, praise him, O ye servants of the Lord. That's the first verse. And the last verse says, Blessed be the Lord out of Zion, which dwelleth at Jerusalem. Praise ye the Lord. So it starts and ends with the same thought. Um, and that's a good example of this particular device called inclusio. And then I want to talk about a different literary device called a chiasm or chiasm. I'm not completely sure on how everyone pronounces that. Um, It's a little bit difficult to explain, but I think you'll get the gist. Generally, in Western thought, as in America, we save the best for last. When we're going to announce the winners of a competition, we start with third place and we work up to first place. When we write a good story, the climax comes really close to the end with just a little bit of falling action afterward to tie up those loose ends. But this is very different from Eastern thought. They put the best things or the final things right in the middle. So if they were announcing the winners of a competition, they would go from third to first and then to second. And in poetry, much of the time, the climax or the main point is found right in the middle of the poem. According to gotquestions.org, a chiasm is a literary device in which a sequence of ideas is presented and then repeated 
in reverse order. The result is a mirror effect as the ideas are reflected back in that passage. The term chiasm comes from the Greek letter chi or chi, which looks like an X. Chiasm is not reserved just for poetry, but it's found all throughout the Bible. Some even see it in entire books of the Bible and in the timeline of human history, with Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection being the very center. Now, I haven't studied that enough to know whether I agree with that or not, but chiasm is very noticeable in the Bible. It's something that we do use, um, and some familiar phrases that you might know are like, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. So that line mirrors itself, and those keywords are repeated, and yet it proves its point. Um, Benjamin Franklin by failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. It's, a, it's the same thing. But in scripture, we're going to look at Psalm chapter 1, or just Psalm 1, I guess I should say, um, and see the, the reflective nature of how this poem is written. So the first verse says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. So it's telling us the blessed man will not do these things. He won't walk, stand, or sit in a way that will direct him away from God. And then verse 2, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. So this is what the blessed man will do. He will delight in knowing and doing God's will. And then there's a third part in verse 3. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. So the blessings of this man who is righteous and follows God, um, his, bless, his life is fruitful and long-lasting. Now we're going to see those three thoughts in reverse order. Verse 4. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. So the ungodly man is not like the fruitful man, the blessed man, and he is unfruitful and unstable. He's not planted by a water that will help him to grow. And then verse 5. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. So he can't even stand up among the righteous or in, God, in the face of God's judgment. And then verse 6, For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. So God knows the ways of all. He knows what the righteous are choosing. He knows what the unrighteous are choosing. And it is a mirror of those, um, those six verses create a mirror effect of principles and truths. So that maybe wasn't the clearest explanation, but hopefully you understand it enough that as you begin reading and studying, you can look for it in poetry. And then the last characteristic is metaphor. And this one is more familiar to us because we do use it in our language and in our poetry. 
but a metaphor uses a basic concrete idea to help define and express something that's complex and intangible. So in Psalm 1 that we just read, a tree represents a righteous man. And then we're going to look at Psalm 18, um, where dangerous and um, people and scary events, trials are represented as stormy waters. So let's see here if I can find that. In verse 4, the sorrows of death compassed me and the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. So he's talking about the ungodly men being a flood. And yet, um, safety and security is represented as dry land. Let's read verses 15 through 17. Then the channels of waters were seen, and the foundations of the world were discovered at thy rebuke. O Lord, at the blast of the breath of thy nostrils, he sent from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from them which hated me. So we see how um, the psalmist uses dry land as the rescue point for this man who's going through deep waters, deep trials. And then in that same psalm, God himself is compared to the rock. Or he's called the rock. Um, I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. This is verses 1 and 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my buckler and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. So God is not only called a rock, he's also called the fortress. So we see uh, metaphors that have to do with um, castles and armor and um, all these secure, strong things. Um, often the, the metaphors that we find in the Bible are rooted in earlier stories or narratives from Scripture. So this example we just went over about water, well, that might have come from the idea of Noah's flood, God's flood, worldwide flood, that um, those who were left in the water were unrighteous. They were the evil ones. But eventually God brought the ark back to rest on dry land. Um, we see other metaphors like in Psalm 1 that we just looked at about trees. And that may have had a little bit of reference back to the Garden of Eden and the trees of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And we also see metaphors that come just from Jewish life in general. There are many metaphors throughout scripture that deal with planting and harvesting crops growing, pruning vineyards, and the care of sheep by the good shepherd. And we know even in the New Testament that Jesus calls himself the good shepherd um, and the door. Those are metaphors to help us understand the salvation and the love that God offers to us. So those are some characteristics of Hebrew poetry. And, um, Many of you will recognize the name Rebecca Brock. She's been on the podcast with me a few times and always has such great insight and wisdom for us. And I was talking with her about this idea of how to explain poetry and what we should look for when we're studying it. And she just had some really great tips that I want to share with you. 
I would have loved it if she were able to join us today, but her schedule just did not permit. So um, she shared these with me and gave me permission to share them with you. So the first one is that as we approach poetry, general Bible study principles must never be abandoned. Poetry is part of the Bible. So the big principles still stand. We always want to know what the original author intended and what the original hearers would have understood. Um, this helps us avoid different pitfalls or making overly spiritualizing ideas in the, the passages that we read. Now, while the New Testament does help us understand the concepts, the seed concepts of the Old Testament more fully, the New Testament will never add meaning to an Old Testament passage. That's really key in poetry. God did progressively reveal more of himself and his plan for mankind throughout the Bible. But who he is and what his plan was has never changed and it never will. So all of scripture has one message. Also, when we're looking specifically at Old Testament poetry, which is a lot, we should be aware of areas of dissimilarity from then to today. Those Old Testament Jews were under Mosaic Covenant, which means there are elements of Mosaic worship, promises, and even curses that are different from the church age. And the example she gave I thought was really good. So in the Psalms, um, we often want to make the mental jump that the temple equals the church. So when they say, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. We post that on our social media on Sunday morning and say, come on, everybody, let's go to church. Now, while that's true, we should be going to church. In reality, the temple was the place where the Old Testament saints could approach and be near God. So they were expressing their desire to be near to God, not necessarily the desire to just be in church. And actually, as Rebecca had said something on our last podcast together, we tend to twist and take some of those things out of context. But when we understand them completely and truthfully, it doesn't lessen their meaning. It grows it and helps us to understand more. So when I think of that verse in terms of being near to God, and I realize because of Jesus's death and resurrection and extending salvation to me, I can do that every day. I don't have to wait for Sunday morning. That's really awesome. <laughs> it's encouraging. So be careful about looking at things that way and understanding the differences between those Old Testament Jews and the New Testament saint. Um, another principle that she pointed out is that we should eagerly look for areas of similarity. So not just dissimilarity, but similarity. Um, these would be things like the characteristics of God. The Psalms are just rich of this truth about God and how he reveals himself. We can look for characteristics of mankind because human nature has not changed from um, the beginning of time until now. There's human emotion and, and just more things like that we can look for. You know, David expressed such a variety of emotions in response to life circumstances because he was human and we are human. 
And I think that's why we really love the Psalms because we relate to David and the other psalmists too. Typically, our lives are not as chaotic and full of tumult and trial and all these things like David's was. But when we see the way that he trusted God in every situation he went through, we think, okay, I can do this. I can trust God too. And the times when he disobeyed and went against God's word, we see the, um, the consequences and we recognize, yeah, I really need to be paying attention and walking with God and not doing things my own way. So his poems give voice to our experiences and our emotions and our responses. Now, please understand, I'm not saying that our feelings should dictate our actions. We must be grounded in the truth. But understanding that we're not alone in this helps us to walk faithfully. And remember, we can turn to God in every situation. Another thing that Rebecca pointed out is we should interpret even poetry in a normal literary sense while still recognizing similes and metaphors and some of those things we talked about above. Some teachers today say that much of what we read in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, didn't literally happen, but it's just a story there to teach us a principle or a lesson. Be so careful of this. That's, that's false teaching. Sometimes they'll say that Jonah was just a story to express that he went through a hard time until he remembered to follow God. No, those are truths. They're not made up stories. Jonah really was swallowed by a large fish and regurgitated on the dry land. Gross as it is, it's true. (laughs) So if you're uncertain about a specific passage, talk with your pastor or husband or another spiritual leader But in general, remember the principle that we do take God's word at face value. Let the Holy Spirit be your guide in this. And then the final point that Rebecca had was that classifying the Psalms really gets a lot of attention. Um, We hear about the Psalms of Ascent or the Psalms of Lament or Royal Psalms or Imprecatory Psalms. And classification really can be helpful but they're just human constructs. They're they're mankind trying to find ways to make sense of God's word. Um, I just did a quick cursory search on the internet and I found seven different classification systems just in a fast Google search. So be careful about that. You can never force a psalm into a mold or look for what we expect or want to find there but just simply study the words that God has given and what actually is there. Um, Sometimes one psalm will fit into several different categories. And while this structure is important, it is just a guide to help us understand truth. Truth is the, the preeminent thing here. So these are lots of principles and little bits of information to help us as we're studying poetry in the Bible. But the overarching goal of all of this is to make your study time more effective and profitable so that we can know God and live for him on this earth so we can obey him and do what he says. Um, We'll continue with this series. We'll study a a few more different sections of scripture in future weeks. 
um, let me hear from you. Send me an email or a text or a message through the blog and the website to um, tell me what you're enjoying, what you want to hear more of, what you didn't understand, so that I can continue to be as helpful to you as possible. I'm praying for you as you study um, and asking God to help you use this knowledge to learn more of him. You've been listening to the Think Bible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Smith. Please visit us at our website, www.thinkbible.online, to learn more about our ministry or to take advantage of the resources we have there for you. That's www.thinkbible.online. You can also find us at Facebook. Instagram or Twitter with the name Think Bible. Until next time, let's all think and live biblically for the glory of God.